David Lynch, you know, the great filmmaker. David Lynch could go down as one of the greatest presidents in history. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode, as with every Wednesday, covers the current events happening uh, in the world around Twin Peaks. I always find it interesting to look at the historical context of when this episode was released. I did this with the 1990-91 episodes, uh, also with Firewalk with me. And now we're going back much closer, but still, I think, with everything that's happened, if you're listening to this in 2022, it still seems like uh, quite a while ago. Well, much of these uh, content of these season three episodes were originally recorded for patrons in uh, 2018. These parts were not. These are very recent that I wrote and recorded these parts because I wanted to give it a little time of five-year reflection. And as you'll see, that is particularly interesting for some of the stories that were in the news this week, I think. Hindsight, uh, no pun intended, is 2020. Parts 1 and 2 aired on Showtime on Sunday, May 21st, 2017. At this time, the number one film in the country, or at least it would be in the morning after the weekend box office receipts were counted, Alien Covenant with $36.1 million. 38 years after Ridley Scott initiated the Alien saga with the 1979 sci-fi classic, this prequel continues the world-building work of Prometheus, the controversial 2012 film which marked the return of Scott to the franchise after James Cameron, David Fincher, Jean-Pierre Jeunet all had their go at it. The 2004 and 2007 Alien vs. Predator spinoffs apparently don't count as canon, at least according to Wikipedia. Although it incorporates some of the alien hunting humans on a spaceship horror content of the original Alien, Alien Covenant's heart appears to be more in broader philosophical questions, explored by the android, or rather, the androids, played by Michael Fassbender. In fact, I actually saw this film the same week that I watched parts 1 and 2. I was visiting New York for a cousin's graduation, and was invited to go to the movie with friends in the area, although I screwed up the starting time and missed almost half the movie. As a result, I embarrassingly didn't realize until several minutes had passed that the two characters that I was watching converse on screen were both played by Michael Fassbender. I guess that's a credit to his performance, if not my powers of observation. I think I entered around the time of a sort of origin story flashback, which gave me quite a different impression of the movie than if I'd watched from the beginning. It also didn't help that I'd never seen Prometheus. That's what was in theaters, and we're talking about that just because um, as we go along, you know, just as we did with the original seasons, we're going to talk about, um, you know, what was what was the number one film at that time. When it comes to TV and what was on TV, it becomes a little more difficult because when I was talking about the 1990 show, there were only three or four other networks to keep track of. Now there's a ton. So when I check on my usual reference for primetime scheduling, the website that I use to uh, figure out what was on at the same time as a given episode, it's tvtango.com, by the way. The first title that popped up on the premiere night of the return was America's Funniest Home Videos. That's the same series that ABC led into the pilot in 1990. That's where these similarities between these two time periods end, though. For quite a number of reasons, I'm not going to continue my TV contact segment into Season 3. Outside of this episode, where I'll cast a glance across the whole summer and see what a few other cable channels were up to. Compared to 1991, when Twin Peaks got cancelled for struggling to pull in 10 million viewers, the ratings for 2017 were even worse. At its best, the live audience numbers just cracked half a million. Adding streaming and later viewings, Showtime estimated that each episode averaged about 2 million viewers, but considering the series' a success, 
because it led to record subscriptions and earned an immense amount of uh, prestige, still didn't quite make up for the fact that it wasn't all that popular. Uh, if audiences hadn't come around to it, critics certainly had. But, you know, that only goes so far, I guess. Plus, television had become unbelievably sprawling, spreading beyond TV itself, strictly speaking, onto streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu. So nobody in 19, you know, nobody could expect the 1990 numbers at this point. Nonetheless, other Showtime staples, just same show, same or different shows on the same network as Twin Peaks this time, tended to outperform it, including Ray Donovan, the gritty crime show which bumped the return down to 8 p.m. from its usual 9 to 10 slot in early August. They actually gave the place a privilege to Ray Donovan. Before that, the lead-out after Twin Peaks was I'm Dying Up Here, about a stand-up comedy club in the 70s, and that one did not outperform Twin Peaks. There was indeed a shade of that old, familiar feeling as far as the ratings and audience goes, as Twin Peaks fans thrilled to a once-in-a-lifetime experience, or a twice-in-a-lifetime experience, I guess, which most people didn't appear to be paying any attention to. One Twitter meme showed a bar full of patrons staring at a TV on one end of the room, while Homer Simpson, all alone, looked at a screen in the other direction. The label across his head read Twin Peaks, while everyone else was tagged Game of Thrones. The HBO fantasy blockbuster Game of Thrones premiered its seventh season, opposite Twin Peaks The Return halfway through this summer, and it had no problem pulling in Twin Peaks' old numbers from 1990, even on cable, week after week. The Game of Thrones finale aired a week before Twin Peaks' finale, and it garnered 12 million live viewers, while Twin Peaks Part 17 and 18 would earn just 300,000. Earlier on in the return, HBO counterprogrammed the final episodes of The Leftovers, an often Lynch-inflected series starring Justin Thoreau of Lynch's Mulholland Drive. I've only ever seen one episode, which was set in a Dreamworld hotel, and I was immediately struck by who and what it was clearly paying tribute to, as Thoreau wandered in confusion through an environment apparently punishing him for some unknown transgression. And during the time period between the finale of The Leftovers and the premiere of Game of Thrones, HBO ran a part of a documentary series, The Defiant Ones, about Dr. Dre and... Jimmy Iovine. On AMC, Fear the Walking Dead was the main competition, at least for some of these weeks. Strangely enough, it's harder to find consistent records for 2017 than it was for 1991. A prequel series spun off from its smash hit zombie show, both of which are still running in 2022. It hovered somewhere between Peaks' and Thrones ratings. Although I won't be running down all of the reality shows that aired during Twin Peaks' time slot, they are kind of a different kettle of fish, if you'll pardon the expression. It's certainly worth noting that E! programmed Keeping Up with the Kardashians from 9 to 10 every Sunday, and CNN was regularly running Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain, as well as premiering its series The 90s, covering the pop and political culture of that decade. Stars ran American Gods during the same time slot. An adaptation of Neil Gaiman's fantasy novel by Major Peaks acolyte Brian Fuller, it had premiered just a few weeks before the return. As of this recording, it was recently cancelled. Another star show that ran alongside Twin Peaks was Power, co-created by 50 Cent and telling the story of a club owner, drug dealer, leading a double life, concluding its final season just before the coronavirus pandemic, meaning that most of the shows that accompanied The Return, when it ran just five years ago, have already vanished alongside of it. We're looking back on an already past era, which may provide a good segue into what was in the news at the time. Obviously, President Donald Trump dominated headlines all day, every day, in the spring of 2017. 
He had fired FBI Chief James Comey less than two weeks earlier, and the coverage of the presidency was very much in its Russiagate-centric framework. A few days earlier, one cast member, during a group guest appearance on Good Morning America to promote the premiere of Twin Peaks, even cracked jokes about Lynch screening the episode for Trump, who kept his mouth shut and didn't tell the Russians. I won't say which cast member made that joke, since he hasn't shown up in Twin Peaks yet, but the video will be linked below. At the time of Twin Peaks' premiere, Trump was in the midst of a visit to another controversial foreign administration, the royal family which ruled Saudi Arabia. This is when that infamous glowing orb photo was taken, if you recall. In fact, the Saudi embassy tweeted it just hours before Showtime debuted the return. A very Peaksian image in its way, perfectly timed. A year later, Trump and Lynch would have their own media run-in, when Lynch was quoted somewhat out of context as saying Trump could be the best president ever, and he went on to say if he could govern in a better manner, which he wasn't. And during the subsequent frenzy and fallout from that 2018 incident, Trump actually went to a MAGA rally, held aloft a stapled printout of the Lynch interview, and waved it around for the confused but still applauding crowd. Well, Trump proclaimed proudly that the great director had endorsed him, but Hollywood would probably never let him work there again. It's legitimately one of the funniest things that ever happened during the Trump presidency, and I'll definitely be linking that video below. I like to think that some of the Red Hats went home that night and decided to watch Inland Empire to own the libs. Now, aside from that unforgettable image of the Saudi orb back in 2017, there wasn't actually much going on in Trump world on this particular day. The two biggest news stories were probably BTS winning a Billboard Award, that's the Korean boy band, uh, K-pop group, and Barnum and & Bailey holding their last circus ever, a New York City performance that ended their 146-year run. Let's start with a breakthrough rather than the curtain call. The K-pop group has a hyper-online, massive fandom that's become known as ARMY. It's an acronym for Adorable Representative MC for Youth, although it doesn't really need that other purpose. It pretty much conveys their force of numbers and dedication just in and of itself. Often, if a right-wing hashtag is trending, the army will flood Twitter with GIFs and videos, fan cams they're called, attached to the term so that when somebody clicks on that word, all they see are screaming crowds and chipper Korean performers. Anyway, on this night, the Billboard Awards ran on Twin Peaks' old network about halfway into the Showtime premiere, BTS was selected for the Top Social Artist Fan Voting category, the first K-pop group to receive this honor. You can guess what happened next. They've won the category over and over every year since, on the strength of their enthusiastic supporters participating in the poll. There were also enthusiastic supporters packed into the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, Long Island at this time, but they were not much representative of a wider phenomenon, which is exactly why they would be the last to witness what was once called the greatest show on earth. It's rather staggering to realize that the circus that so many of us knew and grew up with, stretching from 19th century Victorians all the way up to 30-something millennials like myself, who were kids in the 90s, and perhaps even younger generations, I don't really know, is actually completely and fully over. And it may be a good thing, as even some diehard circus enthusiasts will acknowledge, because the real significant blows were struck by animal rights activists who objected to the treatment of the circus's prime attractions, particularly the elephants. Barnum & Bailey won a $150 million lawsuit against PETA in 2015, but if they were victorious in that battle, the various organizations arrayed against them won the war. In 2016, the biggest name in the circus industry announced that it would be letting go of its last Asian elephants, sending them to a reserve in Florida, and within a year, if not mere months, the business consequences became clear. The brand name founded by a man born in 1810 was going to close its doors in 2017. 
I was going to say it was going to close its tent flaps, but actually they stopped using a tent way back in 1956. There were other factors too, of course, besides the humanitarian concerns. The format was already an anachronism when I was a child, growing up with Nicktoons and action movies, a live event full of unabashedly old-fashioned flourishes and paced to accommodate performers standing before you in the sawdust, rather than audience members with a remote control in their hands. Yet, full confession, I always loved these events. Above all, the full-on sensory experience they provided, which really did feel like a trip to another world. In the case of my small New Hampshire town, the traveling tent, and it really was a traveling tent, arrived courtesy of a different organization, the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers, who were almost as old as Barnum and Bailey and, significantly, still used the big top tarp, rather than a local stadium or arena. You could ride around an elephant before the show and then sit back with a cardboard box of popcorn and harsh spotlight sweeping the sand and take it all in. I'm happy for the elephants that it's over, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't cherish those memories. The Cole brothers, by the way, pulled up their own stakes much less ceremoniously than Barnum and Bailey about a year earlier in June 2016, when a VFW in Florida was stiff-armed by their representatives after a booking, and they had to cancel their charity event with the understanding that there would be no road show after all. There's no other coverage besides those local stories of the century-plus institution vanishing into thin air, but apparently, Vanish It did. Interestingly, Mark Frost celebrated the Cole Brothers Circus nearly 27 years before the return premiered, on his, and technically Lynch's, though he played no role in it, Fox documentary show, American Chronicles, from 1990. I've linked the online video below. Few watching the episode that night, and very few were, as American Chronicles was cancelled within a few months, would have ever predicted that Twin Peaks would still be alive when the circus was dead. For the Time Magazine cover this week, I'm going to go with what was on the cover of Time for May 15th, 2017. Now, because the Showtime seasons aired on a Sunday and uh, new Time Magazine issues are dated on Mondays, I had a decision to make in organizing my cover discussions. Should I go with the issue from the preceding week leading up to the episode, or the one that will technically come out the very next day? I mean, issues are usually on stand several days ahead of time, and in the online era, which we're now in 2017, so people aren't even necessarily picking up magazines on newsstands. These like cover stories or whatnot usually come out maybe even weeks ahead of time. So there's a little bit of a uh, out-of-time quality to deciding which story you're going to go with based on the week on the cover, etc., etc. It was already an issue in 1990. Now it's even more so, especially because these episodes are airing the night before the those issues are dated. But I basically would have gone with the issue from the following week, except for what I saw when I looked up uh, what corresponded to this episode. My decision was made much easier by seeing what came out prior to the premiere rather than after. It'll send a chill down the spine of anyone who lived through 2020, at this point 2021 as well. So therefore, everybody listening in the audience, at least for the next 10 years. Although much of this episode was recorded back in 2018, this part obviously wasn't. The cover of Time Magazine for May 15th, 2017 was a pinkish red cover shot of microbes under a microscope, and it had a white label slapped across it, which said, warning, we are not ready for the next pandemic. Across China, the article begins ominously, the virus that could spark the next pandemic is already circulating. Long before COVID-19, the authors are referring to H7N9, a bird flu that was potentially much deadlier than the recent coronavirus, causing pneumonia in 88% of its recipients, sending three-quarters to intensive care with severe respiratory issues and flat-out killing nearly half. But fortunately, it was not as contagious as COVID would be. The number of new diseases per decade has increased nearly fourfold over the past 60 years, 
the magazine continues, warning it's the highly plausible nightmare scenario that should be keeping the president up at night. And as the cover indicates, the system for responding to infectious disease is broken. So broken that it recently prompted Bill Gates and his wife Melinda to put their weight behind a major public-private initiative called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. The Gates Foundation alone will devote $100 million over the next five years to CEPI, which will help with the uh, development of vaccines against known diseases like MERS, while also investing in next-generation technologies that can counter future threats. I would pause there to note that... Uh, Bill Gates in the past year has shown his foundation efforts to be uh, not only insufficient, but perhaps, uh, well, definitely even counterproductive to the extent that he pushed against waiving patent protections for the vaccine for COVID. This is now, you know, speaking in 2022 and uh, really limited the access to those in the underdeveloped world. And this, this has produced more variants, more spread. So, really a disaster all around. So continuing with the story that they wrote back in 2017, uh, Time Magazine says, Since President Trump took office, key government positions remain unfilled, including a new director for the CDC. The budget that the president proposed in March would have slashed critical funding at the Department of Health and Human Services by $15.1 billion, including deep cuts to the National Institutes of Health, which underwrites more infectious disease research than any other agency in the world. So that's what they write about it. And indeed, uh, Trump would disband the pandemic response team a year after this article came out, although there is some controversy over whether this was a justifiable streamlining gesture, reassigning many of those same people to pandemic response under different auspices, or if it was a reckless removal of precautions a mere year and a half before a world historic outbreak. The article observes that the consequences of a major pandemic would be world-changing. The 1918 flu pandemic killed 50 million to 100 million people at the top end, more than the combined total casualties of World War I and II. And, and for a slew of reasons, humans are arguably more vulnerable today than they were 100 years ago. So I uh, wrote most of this uh, discussion, this description, uh, a year ago, and I said COVID, as it turned out, would kill just 3 million by the late spring of 2021. Those numbers, of course, have gone uh, way up since then. Uh, as I'm recording this a year after I outlined it, it's now uh, winter of 2022, and it stands at 5.9 million, almost a million in the U.S., which is incredible, a sixth of the worldwide total. And uh, I'm sure, unfortunately, by the time this goes up in the spring for the public, it's going to be more, you know, significantly more than that as well. It doesn't seem like the curve is is flattening as much as as much as we might have hoped. So this is obviously the the lower death rate than Time Magazine was worried about is obviously due to the fact that it's just a less deadly disease, very contagious, but doesn't kill as many people as a pandemic theoretically could you know the percentage who die is very low as we all know considering that i guess at this point 428 million have been infected that's a fortunate thing that the percentage is so low the article also observes there are troubling economic implications as well continuing the world bank estimates that the toll from a severe flu pandemic could hit four trillion estimates for the cost of the coronavirus as it turned out, would range from 8 to about $16 trillion. So that part was a low ball on time's part. They continue, but what if there were a way to prevent these spillovers from ever occurring? That's the aim of PREDICT, an ambitious program designed to rapidly detect and respond to emerging pathogens. With that in mind, bizarrely, the Trump administration actually ended funding for that program in March 2020. 
precisely the moment that the danger of a pandemic was becoming radically evident. The program was subsequently granted an emergency extension after Congress people complained about the cuts. Noting that the Gates Foundation launched further research into vaccine development in 2017, the article also quotes Dr. Anthony Fauci as saying, We need to do better with flu vaccines. The article insists, Make no mistake, for all our high-tech isolation units, top-tier doctors, and world-class scientists, the U.S. healthcare system is not ready for the stresses of a major pandemic. As the infectious disease expert Osterholm notes, a pandemic is not like other natural disasters, which tend to be confined to a single location or region. Disease can strike everywhere at once. In the event of a pandemic, even the best hospitals could rapidly run out of beds and mechanical ventilators. Finally, the author concludes, But in the event of a pandemic, it is the president who must lead the country. During Ebola, Trump issued a series of tweets that have sown doubt about how he would handle a true health crisis, and they cite tweets which insist that healthcare workers infected abroad must not return to the U.S., that the disease was much more infectious than the CDC admitted, and that vaccines in general may not be safe. The article ominously muses, Trump's habit of making wild claims on Twitter could be especially dangerous in the event of a pandemic, when public confidence in government is critical to public safety. The emerging climate of fake news and alternative facts leads us worse off than ever before, says Arthur Kaplan, a bioethicist at New York University. I am very worried because I'm certain we will get an outbreak. So there you have it. That was on the cover of Time magazine listed for the week that uh, Twin Peaks premiered. So going back in time five years and looking at what was in the news, I mean, not much more to add to that. That's it for this episode. Uh, We'll take you out with a clip uh, related to one of the stories we covered here in a bemusing way, and also in a way that touches on a phenomenon that began back when Twin Peaks did and uh, stayed continuous through the decades. Well, Twin Peaks obviously quickly ended and then came back 27 years later. So interesting little threads there. It's also worth noting now that we're in a period where Donald Trump was president, that uh, in my first pilot uh, recap of the 1990 episode, the first episode of Twin Peaks, for the current event section, I had a clip about uh, Ryan White, who the boy who died of AIDS around that time. And Michael Jackson, for some reason, got a plane ride with Donald Trump to go visit his family. So I had a news clip of that there. So it's interesting to now be almost three decades later covering Twin Peaks and uh, having him now in a very different role. So uh, that was one of the interesting parts of assembling these archives to see that. Uh, Before we play this last clip, uh, just a note. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to uh, help others see this work. And you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. And tomorrow's episode will dig into what we call In the Weeds, where I'll talk about the order that I think these scenes actually take place in, because there's some weird chronology going on in the return. Uh, This isn't really particularly spoilery. It's just talking about my knowledge of having seen the whole series Uh, where I think these particular scenes would go, and then also talking about the characters, ranking them by screen time, and finally digging into a little of the good old coffee pie and donuts. So I'll see you then. In tonight's Fact or Fiction, we're looking into a picture going around online this month. It claims to show a screenshot of a 2002 episode of The Simpsons that eerily mirrors real-life events. It shows Donald Trump touching a glowing orb with two Middle Eastern-looking men. Well, last month, President Trump did just that with the king of Saudi Arabia and the president of Egypt. So did the Simpsons really predict the future? No. 
The Simpsons image isn't from a 2002 episode, but rather a short video posted on Facebook last month after Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia. It's easy to miss, but the orb picture can be seen right there on the wall leading up to Vice President Mike Pence's office.